word you've given him. Lord, we pray your anointing upon him by your Holy Spirit as he brings that word. And pray, Lord, that you will open our hearts and minds to receive and act on what you want to say to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Andrew. Morning, all. Great to see you all again. Jess and I and family have been away on holiday this week, enjoying the Lake District, which has been really lovely. We got snow one morning, which to Sebi's utter delight. So at 6.30 in the morning, now it was going to rain all day, charged out into the snow and threw snowballs that quickly turned to ice and disappeared inside before I got hurt. <laughs> we're doing a, a series called Christ Church, Christ Values, and uh, we're on to the fourth. Um, we've looked at three doctrinal key values for us as a church, that we're to be word-based, grace-filled, and spirit-empowered, and we're now having a look at three key leadership values for us. Today we're having a look at elders in each local church. Do turn to Ezekiel 34, that's where we'll be. Um, just commend this night to you that Andrew's just mentioned, who cares. Um, there's a, an East Coast and Waveney mission happening. It's an evangelistic initiative between churches in Yarmouth, Lowestoft and here in Beckles. Baptist Church, I believe, are getting involved as well. And uh, we've done a bit of who cares in the past, but really only managed to get halfway through it and do the listening phase, but not quite got to the response phase uh, and so this time we'll be following through. We'll be doing the listening phase in October, November of this uh, coming year, this year that we're in. And we'll process the data during uh, December and over Christmas. And then through January to April in 2021, we'll be responding with the hope of the gospel. As people tell us what hurts the most, we'll be saying that the hope of the gospel um, is, is applicable to their hurts and the pains that they experience. Um, People often ask, you know, what's common amongst humanity? And sadly, one of the things that's common amongst humanity is that everybody hurts. Everybody experiences pain and loss in life. And so we want to hear people's hurts and pains and respond with the hope of the gospel. Um, we're not very clear about how we respond, but we'll, we'll work that out as we hear people's hurts and think about the ways in which we'll respond, teaching series, maybe things to meet people's needs in the community and so on. It'll be a really key initiative for us, and so do get along Tuesday the 17th of March. I think you'll be hearing about it in your house groups as well. Um, be a really key night to kind of get excited for and understand what it's all about. Grand. So we're having a look today at elders in each uh, local church. We've taught uh, many times in, in recent years about the nature of eldership. It may feel um, a little bit repetitive. Um, often issues of church structure, of organization, and of leadership um, can feel a little bit insignificant. I don't know if you feel like that about churches. I'm not really bothered about the way it's kind of structured or the way it's formatted or um, who does what and when and, and so on. Maybe it's for those who are keen, for those who have got a keen theological interest in how church works or are into leadership type stuff or perhaps uh, those who are into church politics or whatever uh, you might language you might use. But our understanding of eldership is really key to healthy church life. It's really key to healthy church life. And something we all experience, regardless of whether you, it's your thing or not, everyone experiences church leadership and eldership because it's something you encounter, something you live with. It's part of the nature of church life. And so it's something we all need to engage with in, in some way or another. I wonder what your personal experience of church has been like throughout the years, um, where you've been in different churches, or maybe you've, you've been here most of your life, uh, in new life. 
I grew up in a, an Anglican church, Evangelical Anglican Church in Knoll, which is a suburb of Solihull, which is a suburb of Birmingham. Yes. <laughs> and uh, it was a great, great experience. Really, really loved growing up in that church. Um, and then I went off to Uganda for a gap year. Oh, I spent my college years at a Catholic college, so I experienced a bit of Catholic church life there. In Uganda, I went to a church of the Nazarene, which, to be honest, till this day, I'm not really sure entirely where they sit. Um, and to be honest, it was all mixed up in culturally experiencing something totally different anyway. Uh, but that was a unique, a different church experience. I was living on a Y1 base as well, Youth with a Mission. I counted a lot of Pentecostals there, and I, wasn't really, um, I hadn't really encountered that kind of church life before. Uh, I came back to the UK, uh, went to university and started going to an Assemblies of God church, um, a Pentecostal church. Um, and after a year, I'd got, uh, met Toby, built a good relationship with him. A lot of my friends had started going to King's, so I went there. It's a new Frontiers church. Um, while I was at uni, I was involved in the CU leading it, and we had relationships with churches of all denominations, Methodist, Baptist, Anglican, and so on. Uh, and that'll be the same for many of you. Perhaps you've got church background in lots of different churches. We experience lots of, we all have experiences of church leadership, eldership, or, or whatever it was called in, in the place where we were. But it's key for us to have some teaching on this because it'll help us uh, as a family have a common understanding and experience of what church eldership is, what it means and what it looks like in practice. There's also a bit of a danger in terms of just not teaching on it, just thinking us. You know, the things, those who are keen and into leadership will find out about it, but the rest of the church doesn't really need to know. There's a problem with that in that um, something else is going to influence our perspective of eldership. There'll be competing images of leadership that emerge um, if we that kind of reflect cultural trends. And cultural trends always influence um, the way we think about church life. They've influenced the way that we thought about church leaders and elders. If you think pre-Reformation, the priest was thought of as being somebody holy, distant, a bit mystical in his celibacy, and um, one who was um, the mediator between God and man. Uh, that People didn't really have access to the scriptures so much, and so their way to God was through the priest. We have the Reformation, and what comes is an understanding that Jesus is our mediator. We've got direct access to God. We can live in relationship with him and a rediscovery of the priesthood of all believers, that all of us minister to one another. Um, and then after that, the post-Reformation period, the Christian minister in developing culture becomes this kind of um, respected public figure, upstanding member of the community, a bit like a doctor or a squire. Think kind of, what's that Martin Clunes program with the doc? It's called Doc something, isn't it? Doc Martin, yeah. And a you know, respected member, pillar of the community, that kind of um, person. And then we have the Enlightenment. And uh, during that period, there's, there's a greater felt need for academic qualification, um, a sense of proving worth through academia. And there's the challenge and the emergence of um, liberal scholarship and in order to resist that and needs to academically be able to be rigorous in the scriptures and so a training colleges for people who want to become church leaders emerge and then if you think more recently there's been developments in psychology and in therapy and counseling and so the need for church leaders to be able to skillfully discern 
the felt needs and intricacies of people's temperaments, their strengths and their weaknesses, and counsel them through the strains and stresses of life. And then to, to bring us right up to date in modern times, um, a lot of leadership talk comes from the business community, doesn't it? If you, a lot of, if you read leadership books, they're often coming from a business kind of you know, arena, and so church leaders often thought to kind of, it's important to have five-year plans and uh, growth charts and graphs and projecting this and that and that kind of language and change management, those kind of language. And some of it's, some of it's great, but there's an influence that's coming on the way that we think about uh, church leaders or elders as kind of like CEOs of businesses. We're also in quite an individualistic culture, aren't we? That we've got the cult of celebrity arising, the one-man mission, the church leader is the guy, the big, charismatic, gifted one who's got the vision and everybody gathers to him in sometimes huge numbers. Um, we get that sense of famous pastors, people often being pastored by somebody through the TV. That They get most of their pastoring from the TV, from the guy who's preaching on the screen who doesn't know anything about their life. Um, so all of these things are influencing our perspective on church leadership and eldership in the way that we think about it. There are other cultural influences as well. Our Western society is democratic in nature. That can kind of creep in. Gender neutral, we've got that. Autonomous, we value autonomy. We value, uh, or we're suspicious of, authority and hierarchies. And all of these things are kind of crowding in on us all the time. They're pressures that kind of shape and influence the way that we think about leadership and about church eldership. And as Christians seeking to live our faith out credibly in the world, we can be quite sensitive to some of these things, can't we? When You can feel it in conversation, can't you? When a topic emerges in conversation with somebody who's not a Christian, and maybe you're not a Christian here today, and some of the things I talk about, you might go, kind of really kind of a great against kind of what contemporary cultural thought is. And when you're in conversation with a non-Christian, as a Christian, you kind of feel it inside you, don't you? Or oh, we're starting to touch on something here that I know culturally isn't very popular. And we kind of, uh, we have that, those kind of pressures going on inside of us. So we're very wary sometimes of the church being called sexist or authoritarian or out of touch or fundamentalist or backward or traditional. And we're very wary of how people might perceive us. And we can be shy in using language like submission spiritual authority, male headship, apostolic authority, elders. But these are important words for us to understand from a biblical perspective and allow them to shape our, our thought. The other thing is that many of us will have had experiences of leadership in the workplace. wonder what your work experience has been like through the years in your career, the type of leadership you've had there, and how that shaped the way that you think of leaders. I know that I come from a school background, so my way I think about leadership sometimes comes from that background, and I have those things shaping the way I think about it. So I wonder what yours are. What are the things that are kind of creeping in that you feel like a pressure or maybe a shaping the way that you think about church leadership and eldership? I think it's really important when we think about this, because there are lots of pressures on it to ask the Lord to reveal to us, in our thinking, what are those things that are affecting the way that we think about it, so that we can think biblically about it and be free from the cultural pressures we might otherwise 
face and might shape it if it isn't the Bible that's shaping it itself. Uh, so let's have a look at um, the value we're having a look at today. The Holy Spirit appoints elders recognized by the church in apostolic ministry. Church government is not a democracy nor an autocracy, but rather a theocracy. Elders' main functions involve leading, feeding, guarding, and guiding the church. We see eldership as the calling of qualified men who oversee the local church in its shared endeavor. Um, So having a look at um, Ezekiel 34, I preached from this uh, about a year and a half ago, I think, but it's worth having a look at again briefly. I'm going to skip through the Bible. We're not going to concentrate just on one passage, but on several. And the most prominent and common image in the Bible for elders is the language used for a shepherd. Uh, The shepherd-sheep relationship is one that the Bible refers to time and time again, and God reveals himself as the shepherd of his flock, the shepherd of his people. Um, In Ezekiel 34 here, um, God laments the Old Testament elders for how they treated his flock. If you have a look at Ezekiel 34, verse 4, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strained, uh, strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to see search or seek for them. And he laments that his sheep are scattered, they're wandering, they're lost, they're not being cared for, they're not being fed. And this breaks God's heart because he's ultimately the shepherd of his flock. And he says in verse 10, I will rescue my sheep. I will rescue my sheep. And then verse 11 again, Behold, I, I myself will search out for my sheep and will seek them out. See, ultimately, we're the flock of God, and we're his sheep. Uh, He's the shepherd. He's the one who will lead, feed, and care for his people. Cast your mind to the story of Exodus. Um, The Israelites' journey through the wilderness provides the archetypal model relationship between God as the shepherd and the people as his flock. Uh, He was their shepherd. His presence was essential to their life together. Without God being present amongst the people, they couldn't advance and make their way towards the promised land. His presence is what made them unique. They weren't his, there wasn't anything special about them except for the fact that God was present among them. His protective presence made them unique. He, he provided for them, brought manna in the desert, uh, in the wilderness. He provided everything they needed, and he guided them to the promised land. He led them on. And throughout the Old Testament, we see that God enlists literal shepherds to also lead his people. Abraham, Moses, David, all shepherds. That God um, delegates the role of shepherd so that they'll fulfill it on his behalf. Um, And what all these guys did was they prefigured, they were a foreshadow of the great shepherd to come. That there was going to be a great shepherd king and he would rule God's kingdom of righteousness and peace. 
And what Jesus does when he arrives on the scene is he applies this Old Testament image of a shepherd to himself. In John 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the elder. It's Jesus' church. He's the shepherd of it. And he lays down his life for his sheep. He guards and cares for and protects his church and his people day and night with a jealous heart. He says, I am the door of the sheep. And what he's talking about there is like lying across the gateway to the pen, letting sheep in and out to pasture back again. So what he's doing is he's protecting the sheep. Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. And this isn't just something Jesus did while he was on earth. It wasn't just something he did when he was teaching people. It's something that goes on into eternity. He's the eternal shepherd of the flock. So in Revelation 7, verses 15 to 17, it says, So they stand, us, before the throne of God and worshipping him in his temple day and night. The one who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. They will never hunger or thirst. And they won't be troubled by the sun or any scorching heat. The lamb, Jesus, in the center of the throne, will be their shepherd. He will lead them to streams of life-giving water, and God will wipe all tears from their eyes. So Jesus is going to be the shepherd of us, his flock, on into eternity. It's in the very heart and nature of God to shepherd his people. And so the role of elders as that ministry being delegated to elders as shepherds isn't some niche theological interest. It's actually something fundamental to the heart of God. It's central to the person of Jesus Christ and for his desire for his people to be led, fed and cared for on mission. So Jesus is the good shepherd. But Jesus, our shepherd king, won't rule alone. Under shepherds are always anticipated throughout the Old Testament. So have a listen to these verses. Jeremiah 3.15 And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. In Isaiah 32.1-2 Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, Jesus, and princes will rule in justice. Elders, each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. So when Jesus, the model shepherd, arrives, he trains and disciples um, these disciples to go to all nations, and then the apostles intuitively start planting churches, establishing flocks of sheep, and appointing elders to oversee the flock. That's what they instinctively do when they obey the Great Commission. These under-shepherds are to be after God's own heart. The desire in an under-shepherd's heart, in an elder's heart, is to be the same as God's. It's to be after God's heart. It's to be after his sense of mission. Their desire is to be bringing the nations into the enjoyment of God, to be bringing people to obedience to Jesus. It's to be on mission fulfilling the Great Commission. They share many of the responsibilities of leaders in other spheres of life, but Hebrews thirteen seventeen says that they have added responsibility of having to give an account for how they shepherded the flock. At some point, they're going to stand before Jesus and have to explain the way that they shepherded the flock of God that was entrusted to them. But they've also got the great comfort, too, and relief. <laughs> the ultimate responsibility doesn't lie with them, 
but relies, relies on Jesus, the chief shepherd and overseer of our souls, as Peter puts it. So under-shepherds, our elders are given to fulfill the role of the chief shepherd here in the church. So who are elders? That's probably worth answering, isn't it, if we're going to do a, a thing on elders. What are they? Well, first, they're sheep. Elders are sheep. They're just sheep. They're just part of the flock. And this is really, really important. And I think one of the things we find probably hardest in our culture to grasp, eldership is not a title. Like once you're an elder, you're always an elder. It's not a position. It's not something you climb to. It's not something you attain by being good at something. It's not something to be uh, grasped at, if, as it were. There's no hierarchy in church life. You're not climbing towards something and at the summit you reach eldership. There's no management structure for the church. There's no pyramid to climb. There's no career ladder to scramble up. There's none of that in church life. There's nobody who holds power in the church. It's just not language that the New Testament's familiar with. The flock is equal. Everyone's a sheep. We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in need of forgiveness. We've all received forgiveness from Jesus um, through his death on the cross. We're all reliant on the Spirit for guidance, for training us in godliness. As I said many times, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Being an elder is not a title or a position. It's not something you're trying to attain to. It's a function and a role in a family. It's just the flock of sheep, all playing different roles. And some in the sheep, some in the fold are playing the role of elders. There's no structure, no, there's no pyramid, there's no ladder. It's just the flock. Elders are just sheep, like everyone else. They're recipients of grace, as each of us are. So Acts 20, 28 says they need to watch over themselves. Jesus even said himself he needed to consecrate himself, sanctify himself. If Jesus needed to do it, how much more do elders also need to be doing the same? They need to stay close to the chief shepherd, to Jesus, enjoy his smile. They need to delight in his presence. They need to constantly be repenting. And enjoying the delight of God in them as he forgives them of their sins. They need to embrace his disciplines, follow his lead. They need to be examples to the flock that they can follow. Elders aren't an end in themselves. They're not like born with intrinsic wisdom. Just ask my mother. They're not born with like some innate special sense of wisdom that they should just kind of automatically have. But just like Moses and David went and spent time with the Lord, Moses would come away, his face shining, just as David would go into the tent and feast at the table of the Lord and delight in his presence. So elders, so shepherds need to do the same, enjoy time with the Father in heaven. Jesus said even that the words he spoke were not of his own initiative. I only say what I hear my Father saying. I only do the things that my Father I see my father doing. He, he goes and listens and spends time with his father to hear his voice to help him on the mission that he's on. So how much more do shepherds, under-shepherds, elders, need to spend time with their shepherd, constantly receiving fresh grace, fresh revelation, fresh instruction from the Lord to help them 
lead people on mission. So that's the first, they're sheep. The second thing elders are is they're men. Genesis 1.21 teaches that men and women are made in the image of God. They're equal in worth and value. There's nothing different about men and women that makes them one better than the other. They're both equal in value and worth. They have different roles in God's creation plan. And they complement one another. And this complementarity is seen throughout the creation story. I'm going to unpack this a little bit. I could spend a series preaching this and unpacking it. And I'm going to deal with it fairly briefly here. And I acknowledge that. But to help us think about complementarity and how it is in scripture. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, doesn't he? They're, they're two entities. They complement one another. And they interact with each other. They're different in nature. They often experience conflict between the two. But they find their harmony and their unity in Jesus Christ, the heavens and the earth. Jesus, the heavenly man. Heavenly God incarnate in human flesh. Spirit becoming flesh to reconcile the heavens and the earth. Until in Revelation 21, we see the new heaven and the new earth, reconciled and brought together harmoniously in Christ. That's the concept of complementarity. If you read through the creation story, it's it's there not just in the heavens and the earth, but in all all kinds of places. It's part of the nature of the way that God has created the world. And there's complementarity between men and women too. They work in harmony together to display the image of the invisible God. Both men and women together reflect God's nature to humanity. If you just had men, then you wouldn't be reflecting the nature of God and the image of God to humanity. If you just had women, you wouldn't be reflecting God's image to humanity either. You need both together in harmony and in unity to reflect the image of God. And so, uh, as a helpful kind of illustration, I've always found this. Imagine the people of God as a, an, an orchestra. There, there's different parts of the orchestra. They're all playing the same tune, but they sound very different. You've got your brass section, your string section, and all the other sections that people under, who know about music know of. Um, <laughs> and you've got different sections playing different sounds. They sound very different. But when they play together, they make a harmonious, beautiful orchestral sound. I don't know what it's like maybe in your relationships with your brothers and sisters or with your husband or wife, uh, but perhaps some sound more brassy. I don't know who that, who that might be. You sound just a bit brassy, a bit more tinny, a bit of... <laughs> in your sound. You've got the string section, possibly a bit more like my wife. It's a beautiful sound. It's a little bit more gentle, a bit more sensitive, a bit easier on the ear. Um, they're both beautiful sounds, um, but when they're played together, there's this beautiful harmony and unity about the orchestra when the different parts, different parts of the orchestra play their role in making the sound. So men and women are different in nature, and we often experience conflict between us, but we find harmony in Jesus Christ again. Because it says, doesn't it, in Galatians, for in Christ there is either male or female. We're all one in Christ. So difference between the sexes finds unity in Jesus. And in heaven we see no marriage, except for the marriage to the Lamb. 
So whilst there's difference, there's also unity and harmony in amongst it. And this isn't just kind of, this is something that's very central to the nature of God. It's part of who he is. Um, So, for example, in God, you see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's three persons, but he's one. There's difference, Father, Son, and Spirit. They all play different roles, but they're united together. They're also equal. The Father isn't better than the Son. The Son's not better than the Spirit, and so on. They're equal together, but they play different roles, and yet they work harmoniously as one. So Jesus, for example, submits himself to the Father's will. He obeys the Father. He only says and does what he hears the Father seeing and do, uh, hears him saying and doing. He's sent by the Father. Jesus says he'll send the Spirit. Implies the Spirit is submitting to the Son. So in the Trinity, we have both genuine equality, but difference with unity and harmony. So the trouble is that um, as I've been talking about these things, and I talked about Jesus submitting to the Father. That idea of submission isn't one that's particularly popular. If you're anything like me, you brought up in the UK, when somebody says the word submission, you do this in your heart. It's just, uh, just grates against what culturally we've kind of lived in and been brought up in. Because submission implies, in our culture, weakness and abuse. That's what it implies. That's why when you hear the word, you go... Ugh. And church history hasn't helped with this either because the church has often been responsible for the abuse and suppression of women. It's a serious sin when women are prevented from being all that God has intended them to be. When they aren't um, led in a way which allows them to flourish into all that God has made them to be. And our desire in the church is for women to flourish in the gifts that God has given them and in the role that God has for them. So when we talk about submission, it has to mean something else other than abuse and weakness. It actually means strength and freedom. See, submission in the Bible isn't forced. It isn't like you must submit. It's voluntarily given. The Father delights in the Son. The Son delights in the Father. And Jesus voluntarily gives his life to the Father. He doesn't doesn't have to. He voluntarily decides to give it. And that's how submission works in scripture so jesus says things like in john 6:38 for i've come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me he came to do the father's will he's submitting to what the father wants him to do voluntarily giving up his life for his father and in gethsemane you know when he's in the garden praying lord take this away from me but not my will but yours be done he's submitting to the father So women were close companions of Jesus. They were highly involved in church life. Jesus was radical in his treatment of women. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I preached that passage in Luke 7 where the woman lets down her hair, pours alabaster, jar of perfume on on Jesus' feet, and he accepts her touching him and her treating him like that. Jesus was absolutely radical. The room was totally outraged by what he did. Remember the shame that was on her flicked to him because of the way he responded to her and accepted her worship. Totally radical in the way he treated women. But when the Bible talks about elders, it always refers to them as men. When Jesus chooses 12 disciples, he chooses men. In the Old Testament, elders are are men. Some have suggested that perhaps this is just because Jesus and his disciples lived in a sexist culture. 
And Jesus was somehow kind of limited in his treatment of women and his selection of his 12 disciples because of the prevailing culture around him. But Jesus and the apostles were absolutely radical in their treatment of women. Jesus had no problem in tearing down the false idols of culture and doing things that went against the grain. He didn't come to just kind of live in culture. He came to transform it, to establish kingdom culture, to say this is it and this is what it looks like. He established a kingdom culture of complementarity. So if Jesus wanted women to be elders, he would have made it clear. They're highly involved in the church, but we don't see any women as elders throughout the Bible. And it's really important to understand that this isn't um, Jesus denying women some sort of title or position because the church is a flock and elders are just part of the flock. They're just playing a role. They're not kind of out of the flock up here in some sort of title or position that, other, that men can have and women can't. It's, they're playing a role within the flock. Um, there's lots more to say on that, and uh, I realize I've dealt with it fairly brief, briefly, and some often have questions about it, but feel free to raise it with me. I'm happy to talk it through more, perhaps share some resources that might help us uh, think that through well. Uh, the third thing is that elders are qualified. Now, we read in uh, 1 Timothy and also in Titus that uh, elders are to be of good character. They're to be above reproach. They're to be a husband of one wife. Their wife is to be with them on mission. They're to be temperate, not like, you know, the kind of person that you're worried to be around in case they snap or blow a fuse. They're to be respectable, somebody you can look up to. They should be able to teach. They can clearly communicate the word of God that the flock feel as though they hear God's voice when they speak and teach. Not given to drunkenness, that they're gentle, not quarrelsome, not up for a fight or an argument all the time. That they're not a lover of money, that sex, power, and money don't have an influence over them. They're good managers of their family. Not that all their children will be Christians, not that all their children won't do things that children do, but that their children will be disciplined, and the discipline of the father and mother will be present. They're not a recent convert, but of good repute with outsiders. And those are the qualifications that we see in Timothy and Titus for what good character looks like. This isn't just character for elders. This is character for us all as Christians. But it's what we would expect an elder to look like. And the fourth thing is the elders are a team. Whenever elders are mentioned in the New Testament, they're mentioned in the plural. There's always more than one of them. Why is that? Well, the first is social. Relationships in an eldership team are utterly vital. They're not colleagues. They're like work colleagues who just need to kind of be amicable with one another and kind of get along and just kind of make it work. They're to be a band of brothers. They're comrades on a mission together. They're friends who laugh together. They know each other well. They know each other's strengths and weaknesses. They know each other's uh, fears and, um, and so on. They have each other's backs. They're deeply committed to one another. Second is they're missional. We have a team because the team is missional. They have a shared purpose. They've got a common goal. It's not a one-man mission. It's not one guy who's the charismatic one who's got the energy and the drive. Uh, The team want the team to win, as it were. They own the vision together. They shepherd the flock together as a team. And the reason that is is because, thirdly, it's complementary. 
that each elder in a team would have different gifts, have different strengths, different talents and skills, and that all of those gifts work together and complement one another in a team. And so they cover each other's weaknesses. One might not be so good at something, another not so good at the other, but as a team, they work well together, shepherding the flock, covering each other's backs. Uh, A while back, uh, we had a church family meeting where we talked about where we're at as a church in terms of appointing elders, and we shared about our current situation and how we uh, will appoint elders, which I'm going to cover now as well. Um, So if you've got any questions about it, perhaps you missed that meeting or we sent a video out by email on eNews. If you'd like to see that to kind of get an understanding of where we're at, then if you just ask me or Paul Cracknell will probably be able to send forward it to you, um, then you can have a watch of that video and it kind of explains uh, where we're up to. So that's who elders are, but how do we appoint them? Uh, We looked briefly at this before, but I want to have a look at it again from uh, another passage. If you turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel, chapter 5. 2 Samuel, chapter 5. And we'll read verses uh, 1 to 3. Um, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people, Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron, before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. So 2 Samuel 5, verse 2, it says, that the first party that's involved in appointing elders is primarily God. Verse 2, the people said of David that he was called by God. He was anointed by them to be their shepherd. They say, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. They were reminding David of a call that, from God that was on him. He was under God's call. He was apprehended for the task. He's, it was not a man-made appointment for a man-pleasing agenda. But there were promises in David's heart that were burning on his heart for the people of God. He was anointed for the task. Church eldership isn't something that's democratic. It's not... Um, democratic in nature committees and boards and voting are foreign to the new testament church life god's way of bringing about elders is anointing and calling elders to govern his church it's theocratic by nature that's what we mean by theocratic god is the one who anoints and calls and gifts elders to play that role in the church family and this sense of calling that's on elders brings a sense of security to the people of god brings a sense of direction, brings a sense of motivation to the church, a security that these men are called by God to lead us. If we simply just appoint elders to kind of have elders, then you don't get that sense of security, direction and motivation. And you move into a kind of religious externality, doing something for the sake of it, rather than because God has called and anointed a group of men to lead the church. Uh, the second is, the church are involved in appointing elders. 
Uh, verse 1, they say uh, that he was bone of their bone, flesh of their flesh. David's flock knew him. They knew him personally. And Paul and his delegates who go and appoint elders from within the flock were known too. So in verse 2, they talk of how David has led them. David has shown clear gifting already. He's not a stranger to them. His appointing was apparent to others. And so it should be for the elders we appoint here. You should know them. They should have been amongst you for a time. You feel like you know them. Like the gifting that's on them is clear. Um, Their character should be proven among the flock. Um, David's ability to... um, Sorry, an elder's ability to teach should be received as a flock, we should feel like we hear God through the teaching of the elders, that they help us bring us nearer to God, giving us a, uh, and through that, the elder will have a sphere of influence in the church that people will begin to gather to his spiritual leadership and his shepherding of people will start to bear fruit in their lives as they're joined to him. Something quite remarkable in um, 1 Chronicles twelve eighteen when it's talking about this, Um, It says, the people say to David, we are yours, O David. We are yours. An elder's calling and gifting, their anointing, should, um, and their vision, their gifting, their, their motivation, should stir the flock inwardly to a sense of expressing their commitment towards the elders and the mission they're on together. They should be heart and soul with them. So I can say personally, coming from Kings, I very heartily, early on, once I got to know Toby especially, but Goff and Marcus and Simon and Stuart and and others as well, that I was 100% behind them. My heart and soul was with those guys. I loved them. They knew me. They cared for me. And I, we, there was a, there's a kind of, I gathered to them, as did others, to their spiritual leadership and said, we're with you on the mission that we're on together. There was a heart-to-heart connection uh, with them. I expressed my commitment to them, saying, you know, how can I help? What can we do? And kind of drank, really, from their teaching and from their, the vision that they cast. Uh, the third is apostles are involved in appointing. Verse 3, the covenant is made, and they appoint David as their shepherd, they publicly recognize their desire for him to lead them. In the New Testament, we see apostles doing the same. They appoint elders and lay hands on them. We see that in 1 Timothy 4.4. They pray for them. They recognize the responsibility of those elders to lead the church. Um, and they commission them uh, to do the task. And 1 Timothy 5.22 says we shouldn't rush to do this just so we're biblical or just so that we can make up the numbers. But we wait We invite apostolic help to recognize men amongst us who are gifted and anointed and called to the task. And then we willingly say we desire for these, this group of men to lead us. And then we appoint them. And then the one that's not in the text but is vital is other elders. The elders in the team need to be on board with each other (laughs) for obvious common sense reasons. They need to be together as a band of brothers, loving one another, recognizing each other's callings in order for them to be effective. Final thing, which uh, I'll I'll do a bit more briefly, was what role do the elders play? We've done a whole series on this where we looked at lead, feed, and care, so I'll just cover it briefly. Um, 
Elders lead. They provide vision which shape the ministry of the church. They help fan into flame the fire that can grow dull in our hearts. They stir us to be motivated to fulfill the mission that we're on. Paul talks about how he wasn't disobedient to the vision that was impressed on him, but that he worked hard to see it fulfilled. And this vision that Paul had was something that gripped others as well. Timothy got caught up in it. Uh, Others were gripped by it. They provide direction to the church and protect it from getting caught up in smaller matters. They protect it from getting caught up in me and my ministry. But as a shared, we have a shared endeavor together. We're on a mission of, we're on a mission to see the nations come into the enjoyment of God together as a family here in Beckles, throughout the Waveney Valley and into the nations. And so, they help raise expectation that God will use us to do unique things that he's calling us to do as a church. Second thing, they feed. Elders provide trustworthy teaching and feed the flock with authentic food. They constantly remind the church of the glorious gospel we've been entrusted with. So they protect the flock from false teaching. They remind them continuously, this is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The subtle twists and manipulations of the gospel can grow like gangrene in the church. And so their teaching brings health to the church, brings sound doctrine and teaching. It helps establish the flock in truth. It helps people reform their, their lives. That often we've got worldviews and ways of thinking that just are contrary to the gospel. And elders teaching, whether that be on a Sunday morning or throughout the week, meeting in people's homes or in house groups, teach to help people reform their minds so that we're transformed. Um, it says that in uh, Romans 12, doesn't it? They help the flock reform their lives and teach them how to relate in godly ways by feeding them with knowledge and understanding. Uh, and final one, if the band want to come back up, is they care. Elders are a channel of God's grace. What they'll do is they'll build relationships of love and trust with people. They'll have the kind of relationships with people that enable them to speak the truth in love. That they'll be able to confront people on sin and protect them and care for their souls and watch over them. Paul talks uh, in Thessalonians about how he was like a nursing mother to the Thessalonians. He talks about how he encouraged them like a father does his own children. There should be, from elders, a parental care, a kind of um, motherly, fatherly caring of the flock, and people should feel it. Finally, I love this uh, quote from Terry Virgo. He says this, There has never been a greater need for true shepherds to be raised up to care for God's flock unafraid to use rod and staff when the need arises and thereby keeping the flock safe and secure at rest and able to lie down unafraid in green pastures. And this is what we're working to as a church. This is what we're hoping for is a team of elders who serve and love us. They lead, feed and care for us as a church family so that that is our experience so that we lie down in green pastures and enjoy the grace of God together as a church. So we stand and we'll respond in in worship.
Just a book recommendation before we do. Uh, this is The Spirit-Filled Church. It's by Terry Virgo. It's well worth a read. It covers some of the topics uh, that we're, mentioning, we're looking at during this series. It's well worth a read. It's a great, great book. I'll pray and then we'll worship, shall we? Father God, we, we thank you that you're the shepherd of our souls, that you're keeping watch over us constantly. Thank you, Jesus, that you're the good shepherd, you're the elder that's watching over us, caring for us at all times. Your eyes are never off us, we're never out of your thoughts. You're always wanting to do us good and bless us, and we're so grateful for that. And we thank you that your desire is to have shepherds, under-shepherds, after your own heart. And we pray for us as a church, Lord, that we would, um, in the near future, have a team of elders who serve us as a church, where, that fulfill your shepherding role for us. And so we experience all that we've looked at here today. In Jesus' name. Amen.